Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Ben Croker from Put Your Lights On. And today we have on Carson from Big Sky Software. How are you doing, Carson? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on again. Yeah, no worries, man. And we also have on Denise Akshamshake. How'd I do? That was perfect. All right, Denise passable. Akshamshake. Akshamshake. And, <laughs> and you are a co-maintainer on this thing called Hyperscript, which we're here to find out about. So, Carson, if you were out drinking in the Roppongi district in Tokyo, Japan, and you decided that you're going to get a, a massage afterwards, you lay down on the massage table, you're getting the massage, it's fantastic, but you drank so much beer that your bladder is really hurting. Every time she presses into your back, it's kind of painful. And you ask her, hey, can I go use the the bathroom real quick? And she says, all right, I will let you use the bathroom if you tell me what Hyperscript is. What would you tell me? <laughs> well, Hyperscript, you know, actually, before I get into that, I just want to say you gotta, thank you. You got to pee, man. You got to, we can get to the thank yous in a minute, but right now you got to <laughs> okay. pee. It hurts. Like you, you okay. got to do it. Hyperscript is a scripting language for front end web development. And it's event oriented in contrast with JavaScript, which is more of a kind of mishmash of object oriented concepts. And Denise, if you're laying there beside him getting in the massage and you also have to go to the bathroom, what is your quick description of Hyperscript that you would give her? Hyperscript is like if JavaScript was designed for the web. Oh, <laughs> I like it. Pithy, pithy and salty. I like it. That's really good. All right. So Hyperscript is this thing that we, apparently it's, it's kind of associated with this thing called HTMX that we had you on to talk about before. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say thank you for, because this was actually the first podcast that invited me on to talk about HTMX. And so it was a, it was a huge boost to HTMX. We just passed 5,000 stars on GitHub nice. with HTMX. And so it's, it's getting quite popular and I credit you and, and your team for, for getting us out there. And I appreciate, you know, taking a chance on something that was relatively new at the time. So All right. I don't <laughs> think any of that credit is due to me. However, I'm interested in, to know how can I spend all these stars? Is there something I can buy with these? <laughs> <laughs> All I these know. GitHub stars. My oldest son always asks me, can you buy something with those stars? Or you just you just give the software away for free? Like, yeah, buddy, that's the way it works. It's called it's cred, right? It's called cred. Or <laughs> as the kids call it these days, clout, right? Yeah, I guess. But again, you know, I'm very thankful that you were one that had me on and talk about it. And uh, HTMX is a, an extension of HTML. It's a declarative way to add AJAX behavior for the most part to your web pages. And so HTMX came out of an older library called IntercoolerJS. Mm -hmm. And IntercoolerJS has been around for about eight years now, and it was based on jQuery. And so HTMX was really sort of intercooler 2.0. And when I created HTMX, I took out the jQuery dependency. And I also, I tried to, to narrow down, Intercooler had become very Baroque. It tried to do everything. And with HTMX, I really wanted to focus it down on just that Ajax interaction uh, front in, a, in a declarative way in HTML and really extending HTML as a hypermedia is the way I'd say it nowadays. But there was an attribute in HTMX, or excuse me, in IntercoolerJS that was called IC Action. And IC Action was a way to add sort of front end script to your web page within Intercooler. And so it was just a, a really simple, hacky way to add some front-end scripting that was mainly jQuery-based for the most part. Okay, so the picture and, I'm uh, getting here is you made this Intercooler thing, and when you refactored it to HTMX, you tried to separate your concerns, and part of what you tore out was probably functionality that I guess HyperScript is intended to pick up. Is that how it works? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And so when I decided to go to HTMX, I said, well, okay, I see action 
interaction is it's just not focused on this Ajax interaction with the server. But at the same time, there were, there were features in it that I really liked. And so the more I looked at it, the more I felt like, you know, there's really a scripting language here. The IC action really, what I was trying to do was provide an actual scripting language. And so as a side project, just a much more speculative side project, I have to admit, alongside HTMX, I decided to create a programming language called HyperScript. And so HyperScript is sort of that idea of let's take this hacky one-off attribute that we had in Intercooler and let's give it a proper treatment with a proper scripting language. And so that's sort of the, the genesis of where HyperScript came from. Okay, so I have to ask the question. We already have this scripting language in our browsers and it's called JavaScript. Why don't we just use JavaScript? What's the reason why we shouldn't just be using JavaScript here? Sure. Well, one thing that you'll notice about JavaScript is despite it being the native scripting language for the web, it actually is pretty inconvenient to do a lot of things in JavaScript. So a good example of that is just listening for an event. It's unclear exactly where to hook up event listeners. Uh, if you're using the jQuery pattern, you've got this sort of pattern where you wait for the onload and then you look up the element and then you add a, an event handler and so forth. And it just ends up being kind of difficult to navigate. So the goal with HyperScript was to, to provide more native support for scripting on the web. So have things, for example, like CSS literals. So rather than having to issue a CSS query through the DOM API, why shouldn't you just be able to put a class literal like you would in CSS, for example, and have that evaluate to all the elements that have that class on it. And so we're really trying to add in functionality that makes it much much more convenient to work with the front end, work with the DOM as the DOM. We're trying to provide some tactic sugar at the end of the day, uh, admittedly, that makes it much easier to write these sort of simple front, on, front end scripts. All right, now you said the word native scripting language or the words native scripting language. Denise, I, I gotta ask you this question. We're talking about running an operating system and then on top of that operating system, we're running a browser. And then in that browser, we're running the, the V8 engine or whatever virtual machine we want for JavaScript. And then you're telling me that the way to do a native scripting language is then write it in JavaScript? How does it work? Does it compile it to JavaScript and then native JavaScript runs in the browser? Is it a runtime? How exactly does that work from a technical point of view? Well, HyperScript is actually implemented in basically the slowest way you can implement a programming language, which is a tree walking interpreter. Okay. So we don't compile it to JavaScript. We create JavaScript objects and then those objects have a method called evaluate. Yeah. It's more complicated than that to handle async stuff, but that's the gist of it. But it's essentially a, a runtime in interpreted JavaScript yes. is interpreting the interpreted HTMX, is it? Or sorry. Well, the JavaScript is JIT or whatever. I'll just say random words and hope that people believe it's fast somehow. <laughs> it's faster than the real DOM. Right. Well, I, okay, the reason I'm bringing it up is the word native was used, okay? And I just want to make it clear, we're as far from native as we can get, not just with HyperScript, well, but with just about everything. Your native language is English, and HyperScript is pretty close to that. Okay. Hey, <laughs> that's actually a fair point. I like that. Native in the sense that it's the language features are much closer to the DOM API than in JavaScript. JavaScript sort of has this object-oriented approach to things, and so everything is available through methods. And so, and whereas in HyperScript, there's native syntax for, again, like CSS literals and so forth. So that's when I say native, I certainly don't mean performance. Like I would not write a Bitcoin miner in HyperScript. <laughs> um, that, that would be quite foolish. And amidst all this talk, we're actually recording this the day after Thanksgiving, which in the United States, 
States is Native American Heritage Day. So we got some other native stuff going on here. That's yeah, that's pretty cool. All right. So getting back to HyperScript, though, I'm still a little bit unclear on why I shouldn't just use JavaScript. I know what you're saying. Like, it's a little bit verbose, a little bit of extra work. But but are the benefits of having this interpreted language and the performance hit and, and all that kind of stuff that it relates to and, and having to learn the new thing, what makes it worth it in your eyes to be doing this? Well, I enjoy working on programming languages. So <laughs> that's first things first here. I wanted to work on it. It's not um, all about you, but, Carson. Uh, Come on, man. It's I not know. all about you. I know. <laughs> I know, but I think that the benefits of, of HyperScript are when contrasted with JavaScript, for example, it, the number one benefit I would say is the, the way that you write HyperScript is you actually put it in an attribute on the elements that you want the behaviors to be on. So if you have a button and you want that button to do something when that button is clicked, you actually add an attribute, which is the underscore attribute, and then you put the HyperScript in that attribute. So that attribute's value is going to be the script that executes when you click on the button. And in that sense, with HyperScript, you have much better locality of behavior, which is something that we've also, we talked about last time, I think, on here. But this idea that you put the code on the, the unit that where the code is executing, you put so that you can see when I look at a button, I can see everything that it does. Now, with in the case of click, there's on click in the DOM. So you can have an on click attribute and you can write some JavaScript code in that. But the way that HyperScript script works, you can actually respond to any event, not just the standard DOM events. And that's particularly useful when working with a library like HTMX, where HTMX is very liberal in the number of events that it generates. And so, you know, during a request, HTMX is going to uh, issue a whole bunch of different events. And if you want to respond to some of those events, for example, if you wanted to disable the button while a request was in flight and then re-enable it, well, you can write that as a hyperscript on that button very in a very very tight manner and it's just much clearer it's much easier to understand what's going on instead of for example writing a jquery event handler to deal with that so everything's embedded directly on the elements so i think that's the number one benefit that i would point to with hyperscript now that said there's also something like tools like alpine js which bring a lot of those same benefits directly to javascript so so there you know you do have other options as well so it's interesting to me if i'm looking at some of your example functionality of hyperscript and so it has underscore equals and then some words that look kind of Englishy, right? In terms of what they do. What struck me first when I looked at this is that this actually kind of reminded me, at least from a methodology point of view, of the CSS framework Tailwind CSS. And Adam went through all of these arguments with people about separations of concern. Why are you putting all these classes in here? These should be in a separate style sheet over there. And he actually had some pretty legitimate reasons for doing that, in that you kind of want the thing in the locality where it does something which makes it easier. And you're kind of doing the same thing. So instead of jumping back and forth between a app.js and an app.html, you're just editing all in one place and the locality is, is on the object. Just as with, if you're using Tailwind CSS, you would have class equals and then all the classes would be in there. You're not gonna be editing your CSS file. Is that a reasonable analogy to make? Yeah, I think so. Now, and again, I would point to Alpine.js as another library that, that has this, this locality of behavior. Yep. 
attribute that hyperscript hyperscript probably i would call it a, a modern jquery at some level it provides a lot of the functionality that jquery had but it does it in a more advanced way and so and one of the problems he had with jquery was that you would hook up these event handlers all over the place and goodness knows where like in maybe an app.js or whatever yeah but then you would look at a button and you would just have no idea what that button was doing you'd have to find the selector that grabbed that button maybe it was using the class rather than the id who knows right you just tr trolling around to try and figure out what that darn button is doing is is difficult and with, with hyperscript everything's directly it's right there you just see it and there are trade-offs obviously associated with that you don't want to put too much logic in the dom but one of the thing one of the other nice aspects of hyperscript is it has an awful lot of high level features that and it lets you achieve things that in javascript you'd have to invoke a bunch more functions to make something happen in hyperscript it's very terse for the common ui patterns and it's interesting because I, I think about this from a just larger programming computer science point of view. And front-end development is one of the few things that has this problem. So if I'm building something in, let's say I'm building something for iOS or for macOS or whatever. Yeah, there's an interface builder, but in your actual code, everything is right there. In terms of the objects are there, you don't have the same, I'm gonna be editing this object in three different files to, to take care of the presentation, the appearance, as well as the functionality, which in front-end programming, they're actually kind of split up into these three separate areas where most of the other programming that I've done anyway, it's all in one area. It's all in your object or your yeah. function or, or whatever it is you're, that you're doing. Yeah, that's right. So Carson, what I'm wondering is, did you have a visit from the Don, from Bill Atkinson? His swan song was Hypercard. And for anyone who's not old enough to know who Bill Atkinson was, he's the one that did the original Quick Draw, which was this low-level assembly library for drawing objects in macOS, which actually was pretty amazing at the time because the processors weren't that fast and the fact that it was able to work and it drove the first personal computer operating system. Actually, it was on the Lisa, but whatever. And he innovated that and he his swan song was the thing called hypercard. He wanted to bring programming to the masses. He wanted to do something that allowed people, average people, to put some together. And as part of that, he recognized that it needs some kind of a scripting language, but it's not targeted at hardcore programmers. So he had his buddy, Dan Winkler, who was also working at Apple at the time, come up with this thing called HyperTalk. Did Dan Winkler and Bill Atkinson visit you and say, you know, you guys had some beers and you're just like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to make HyperTalk for the web. Is that kind of how this whole thing went down or, or what happened? Well, to, at some level, at least spiritually, that's the case. Um, I've actually tried to get in touch with those guys and I, I've had mixed success. But when I was thinking about, again, I was coming from this IC action world, you know, this IC action feature. And I was thinking to myself, well, I really want a programming language that is event oriented because there were a few other features as well in Intercooler that were all sort of around events. And it's just kind of a pain to work with it. Like creating a new event in JavaScript or responding to an event just kind of stinks. It's just a lot of code to do the basics or at least more code than I wanted. And so I was thinking, okay, well, were there any programming languages that I'm aware of that are sort of event oriented? And I worked in HyperCard when I was much younger. Oh boy. And uh, I thought to myself, <laughs> I thought to myself, well, you know what? There was, there was an old scripting language called HyperTalk. And so I really went back to HyperTalk for a lot of the inspiration for, for HyperScript. So yes, absolutely a huge influence on the scripting language. That said, 
Viper script is a web-oriented version of that general idea. And what I think I would like to add to that or come back to is the importance of events in JavaScript, right? Because we have this kind of holy trinity of front-end, which is HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And the JavaScript part is to add the interaction. And interaction happens through events, be it user events, so things like clicks or mouse overs or key downs, or events that are triggered by different pieces of JavaScript code. And jQuery is something that we was created really for, to allow us to manipulate code that was most often triggered by events. And I think that's where HTMX really shines. The other thing I would do is I would differentiate it from a programming language. I would say that JavaScript has, even though it's a scripting language, has evolved to the stage where you can write relatively large scale programs with it. And, you, and the way that you think about JavaScript is you need to come at it from a programmatic perspective. Whereas if you're writing hyperscript, then you no longer have to think about things logically. You no longer really need to maintain state or think about where is this code in the cycle. Like things happen very on a much higher level, I would say. And by high level, I mean like it's much more approachable. It's much more readable. And readability is, I think, possibly the, the most important thing when writing code. You want your code to be readable because we spend most of our time reading code rather than writing code and trying to understand code. So readability leads to maintainability and reusability in the long run. And what you end up with with TypeScript is one benefit is we've already discussed this locality of behavior. So as opposed to jQuery, where you had to go op open up a JavaScript file and figure out how the code in that file relates to the code in the HTML, you no longer have to do that because that code is contained in this one place. And the second big benefit, of course, is that it's based on it's a natural language typing script, right? Based on English. So just by looking at it, in most cases, I would say 90% of cases, you can figure out what it does without having to really understand the syntax. There is syntax to learn when you're writing it. And I think there are some benefits and drawbacks to using natural language. And we can talk about those. But the big benefit, of course, is that you can read what this single line of hyperscript says and almost purely intuitively figure out what, it, what the actual result will be. I'd like to clear up a few misconceptions that people seem to always get about hyperscript first of all apple script is not involved at all if you've ever used that forget everything mm -hmm. you know secondly people see the natural language and i think they get a bit scared that we're doing some sort of gpt3 magic and it's really not that complicated the parser c is far more complicated than hyperscript parser wise probably Perl, maybe even ruby when you see a hyperscript program that looks like natural language that's not just an achievement of hyperscript that's also because the author put in effort to make it that and we give you the tools but we don't try to guess your intent got it so ben i understand what you're saying in terms of having this all in one place and it, it can be useful from a locality point of view but it isn't one of the reasons why we have html the way that it is is that someone who is not a programmer can go in there and they can change the html and it's they're not going to screw up the JavaScript, right? Or a designer could be editing the CSS and that's not going to screw up the HTML. You know, if they, people make mistakes. So is it, is it dangerous to put all of this in line where, you know, I, I get some, uh, a front end developer who doesn't know anything about anything. If they're just trying to reformat a, a block of text or something, could they potentially screw up the functionality of the app if they don't know what's going on in there? They could, but I think they always oh, could, no. right? If they, so with jQuery, um, we were very often tying pieces of functionality to an element's ID, 
so I guess you, there's always a risk of breaking things when you're editing the HTML code, right? Like even if you think of the way we used to do things with jQuery, we would very often target the element, most often than not using its ID or perhaps its tag and class. So if there's a developer editing the HTML and they edit the wrong thing, be it the ID or the tag name, they change a H1 into H2, there is a chance of our code breaking for sure, the functionality or the interoperability of the JavaScript with the HTML. What happens when you have things in line with HyperScript is that if you break, if you change something, you can also see how that ID is being used. So let's say an element ID or an element tag needs to be changed. It's very trivial or very easy to find on the page and see if that ID is referenced in code as well. So I think, I don't think it makes your code more fragile. I think if anything, everything's in one place. So it's easier to not lose track of stray code. Yeah, I think okay. in addition to that, the hyperscript has a specific use case. It's for light front end scripting. It's you don't you don't want to write huge bits of hyperscript and sprinkle throughout your DOM. It's, it's for toggling classes or maybe maintaining a little bit of state in an attribute or something like that. So you, you shouldn't have these huge scripts. It's a high level scripting language. There's some very powerful commands, what we would call commands, but to do things in it. And there's very high level syntax. And so it's very easy to get quite a bit done with very little scripting. And hopefully because of that, it's sort of hard to screw up. Oh, okay. On click toggle foo on hash bar, right? Well, okay. What's that do? It's toggling the foo class on the thing with the ID bar. That's fine. Your front end designer, you can I mean, he might even be able, he or she might uh, even be able to, to write that or modify it if they want some new behavior. And so the scripting language is designed to be small in that sense. It's not designed, it's not like JavaScript where, okay, we're going to have a router. We're going to have some reactive situation going on. We've got all this, all these levels of indirection. Everything is on the surface. And so the hope is because everything is on the surface and you can see it all, that it's much easier to understand what's going on and your designer will be less likely to, to accidentally mess things up. Well, I'll be honest with you, Carson. When I first saw HyperScript and saw what you were doing, I had a very visceral reaction. And it was not a good visceral reaction, <laughs> right? Yep. But, I mean, I, you know, I, the standard stuff that you probably hear all the time, you know, why are they making a language on top of a language? You know, we, or we already have JavaScript, you know, all the, all the nonsense that you probably have heard before. But since then, I had a mind-opening experience. I went out to the desert, I took some peyote, <laughs> and my, my mind expanded, and I started thinking about it from a little bit more abstract point of view. And what you're trying to do with both HTMX and HyperScript, you're trying to solve the same problem that a lot of these JavaScript libraries are attempting to solve. So for instance, like let's take Vue.js for example. Is it really that much different that Vue has its own templating language and directives that you can sprinkle in there as opposed to a scripting language that you're writing. I mean, they're, they're trying to accomplish the same thing in terms of how do I attach listeners? How do I respond to user events? They're doing it from a directive approach, which is also what Alpine does, right? That you add your own Alpine directives. You're doing the exact same thing. You're just saying, okay, instead of adding directives, I'm gonna add a lightweight scripting language on top. Right? Is that did my mind altering experience? Did it allow me to see the light in terms of what you're really trying to do? Yeah, I think that's a good way to to think about it. And the other really nice thing about having a scripting language to do this in, or a parser we control, is that we can really do some pretty elaborate stuff. So, for example, the way that events are handled, the the event queue. So, if someone clicks on a button and they click again, what happens? Do you queue that second click? Do you discard it? Yeah. Uh, you know, what do you what do you do? Well. 
we have syntax and hyperscript to handle all, all those different situations. And so it lets us express what normally in JavaScript would be quite a bit of code and pretty difficult to understand code in a relatively high level scripting language. And once you get to a certain point, like I look at Alpine sometimes and they're doing quite a bit with the attribute names, you know, like they have a lot right. of stuff in those attribute names. And it feels to me like they really want a scripting language and they may end up, Caleb may end up going down that, that path. But that's the funny thing. If you look at some of the stuff, if you look at Vue and you look at Alpine, you can say, okay, well, honestly, what's the difference between V on click and then some code versus some hyperscript code that has the equivalent in there, but just no directive. So you're basically taking the route that Alpine and Vue and some of these other JavaScript libraries have taken is they've got the, a lot of this stuff in directives. And all you're saying is, no, no, we're going to take those directives and we're going to move them into a scripting language. And it's, but other than that, it, you're, it's kind of the same thing and you're trying to accomplish the same things, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then again, just with this background that I had in HyperCard, it struck me that the HyperTalk syntax had a lot of this sort of event base. We're all trying to figure out the right way to do events here. And so it, this was my best guess at it. And it's, I do want to say, this is a much more speculative project than HTMX. Like I know HTMX is a good idea. Any listener here <laughs> would be well served by at least taking a hard look at HTMX for some other projects. Hyperscript is working out really well. I'm very happy with how it's working out, but it was at the start it was much more speculative because I just hadn't done a front end scripting language ever. <laughs> so, um, and that said, again, I've been really happy how the two projects have worked out. They, they integrate really well together. And so it's turned out much better than I expected. I would say that while Hyperscript is comparable to something like Alpine.js because take a similar approach in, in the locality of behavior, how they're used is quite different. And I think that obviously Alpine.js was heavily influenced by Vue.js and yep. The way that you use it, generally speaking, is more in a programmatic way. So probably the most, so I've used Alpine.js on a few projects and the way I see it used as well most often is that you use it to toggle, toggle a menu basically, open or close, right? And the way that you achieve that is that you start off by wrapping your component or your or this element with an, I think it's X dash data, and then you kind of create this state. So you say open equals false. So you're basically creating a, a variable, uh, you're setting the the default value to false. And the way that you open and close that menu is that you change the state of that value. And that's a very programmatic way of thinking of things. If you described an English language to somebody just, you know, when the button is clicked, open the menu, when it's when it's clicked again, close the menu, you would have to be a programmer to think, oh, I'll create this variable and then I'll just change the state and the menu will be listening to the value of that variable. Hyperscript, I think, takes a much simpler approach where it says, okay, you can put a piece of Hyperscript on the button so that when the button is clicked, we'll just toggle the the class that's on that and therefore the menu will open or close. There is no state to manage in this case. And uh, we're just toggling, toggling a class on or off. And what I find really compelling about Hyperscript is that you can use these event handlers anywhere. So when you first come to Hyperscript and when you first look at the examples, you'll see that most of the event handlers are on the element itself that's being clicked. But you can put that event handler on a different element. So you can put the event handler, for example, on the menu itself. And you can tell the menu to listen to events on the the other buttons, which would be elements on the page. So I think the mental load 
of converting a specification of what a piece of markup should do and how it should behave is it's a different approach to translating it to a programmatic one that Alpine JS uses and for hyperscript which is more of a kind of natural way of thinking about things and then that extends to the way that you articulate that through the the scripting language itself yeah and that all makes sense to me i realize that there are differences in the way you would actually be implementing these things i just mean from a more abstract point of view they're trying to solve the same problem and they're trying to do it in just kind of different ways in terms of in one way you're going to be adding attributes to your html that tell it to do things when various things happen and in the other way you've got a, a scripting language that says you're just going to in natural language declare what should happen and, but in the end they're not that dissimilar so i don't think it's as crazy as i originally thought it might be I also thought at some stage, Hyperscript has been around close to two years now, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. And I thought Carson had lost the plot a couple of times along that journey, but I'm, I'm coming <laughs> around to it as well. I am. And I think part of it is has to do with the way that you work, the other tools that you use. So if you're if you're using Vue.js, then you have you have a templating language to use and you can create your components. And I think with Alpine, uh, which again, heavily influenced by Vue.js, Alpine introduced things like uh, an if directive, even a for loop, so you can loop over things. In my case, I'm generally working with Twig and Craft CMS. So I have my templating language. It's Twig. I don't need my JavaScript to output for loops and do things like that for me. So all I want is the interaction. I want to be able to inject, inject interactive elements into the HTML. And in this way, just similar to how HTMX is an extension of, or extends HTML, I think HyperScript extends the interactivity that's missing from, from HTML. And that's really a branding misfire, Carson. It really should have been called JavaScript script. JavaScript you know, script. Because it really, sure. because yeah. It is kind of a script that sits on top of JavaScript. But it so, is. JSX was taken. Well, you're telling me, though, that this hyperscript is kind of a speculative project. And my understanding is that Denise is kind of the real, he's the mastermind behind these things. <laughs> Are you speculative, Denise? Is that what's going on? Well, I just post things that I have in my mind and the Discord chat turns them into good ideas. I have to tell the story of how Dennis got involved. So he was on the Discord. This doesn't involve human trafficking or anything yeah. like that, right? You can you can say this on air? Yeah, okay. right, I think so. I think so. He's a little bit of an artist and he had done some doodles that, I, that were very funny and very cool around HTMX. And he expressed some interest in HyperScript. And so basically I gave him the hardest problem that I, the hardest open problem in the HyperScript code base, which was I wanted you to be able to declare a web worker in line in HyperScript, and you just could write it in a script tag without any of this garbage where you have to load some other script file or any of that stuff. Like I just wanted to define a web worker and then have an object-oriented interface to that web worker. And so- That I was, sounds hard. That sounds really hard, and it is really hard. And so he was- web workers are synchronous, right? And a lot of the DOM mm -hmm. APIs are async. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so- Good luck, Denise. <laughs> so I, uh, I gave it to him, and like two days later, he came back and he was done. With tests, it was beautiful, the code, I was wow. just like, all right, I found I found my partner when it comes to nice. working on hypers. And uh, he's done like the debugger, which is super intense and awesome. So there's a, a built-in debugger for HyperScript that he did. And so it's been a great relationship. I'm very thankful to have found Dennis. So Right, that it seems like it's simple on the surface, but when you get <laughs> into it, there are a lot of features that, that are pretty involved. 
and that will yeah. really help to simplify. If, if you're trying to do these things in JavaScript, there's a lot of documentation to read and there's a lot of figuring out, whereas HyperScript takes what would relative would be normally a quite a complex concept, such as WebSockets and workers, everything to do with a synchronous code, and it makes it very simple to use with, yeah. with its kind of API, which doesn't feel like an API because you're just you know writing it in, in natural language. Again, HyperScript is intended to be very high level. And so Ben points out there's, so why, why do we have a tree walk interpreter? Why choose, why not do some sort of compilation, at least into do a transpilation into JavaScript or something like that? And the answer to that is because HyperScript takes the, uh, the asynchronous aspects of JavaScript and abstracts them away. So when promises are generated in HyperScript programs, the HyperScript runtime waits for those promises to resolve before it continues. That's kind of fancy pants, whatever. What that ends up meaning is that you can write HyperScript code that invokes asynchronous things like fetch or whatever, that where it returns a promise. And without having to mark your HyperScript as async or any of that stuff, the HyperScript runtime will actually take care of all that for you. And so you can just say fetch slash foo, and then put the result into my inner HTML. That's actually legal HyperScript, what I just said. And the asynchronous nature of that fetch is actually wrapped up for you. And you don't have to think about the fact that there's some asynchronous stuff going on there. You as the script writer, just write what you want in a natural linear fashion and the HyperScript runtime will take care of all that for you. And so again, that's an example where HyperScript is much higher level than JavaScript. It provides the script writer with a lot more infrastructure under the covers, which makes the scripts that are written much simpler. And again, just to draw analogies between other things that people may be familiar with. What you're talking about is kind of analogous to React and their Suspense API, which is basically trying to solve the same thing in that there's something asynchronous that's going on over here. We want some way to handle that coming in without blocking anything else. And, and you know, how do we then do that? Yeah. But Ben, you're saying that you're starting to come on board with HyperScript. And for anyone who doesn't know, Ben is the creator of this thing called Sprig for Craft CMS, which is sort of a craft-specific abstraction of HTMX in a way. I mean, it's it's more than that, but it, just bear with me that that is what we're going to call it for now. Does that mean, Ben, that you are going to be working on SpriggleScript, which is sort of an abstraction of HyperScript, or do you have anything to, you want to announce today? You come up with the best names, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, it's my only talent. Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Sprig uh, is, yeah, it's, you could think of it as a middleware between HTMX and Craft. It exists as a plugin for Craft, so you can install it very simply, but it's that, it provides that middle layer or middleware. With HyperScript, you're just, it's in your HTML code. You can already write it with Twig. I don't see any way of making I want to hear about SpriggleScript though, Ben. <laughs> Tell me about SpriggleScript and what's it going to do? SpriggleScript. Like I said, with HTMX, we need a, we need a 1.0 and then I'll get to work work on on Spriggle script uh, so yeah so come on Carson I know I pushed you to, to release a 1.0 with HTMX I think HTMX was much more focused about what you wanted it to be and it seems like hyperscript has been quite experimental and that we're seeing what features make sense to put in and what features don't how do you feel about the the project as a whole now do you feel like you're getting close to a 1.0 do you feel like there are features that are missing or that you'd like to have in or are there features that have maybe been a mistake and you'd like to pull out um what, what's your 
thinking about that? Yeah, I think it's in a pretty good spot. Um, we're pretty close to a 1.0. Dennis, do you agree with that? Yeah, pretty much. It's it's pretty usable. One thing yeah. is there's a templating system built into <laughs> HyperScript. I don't think anyone uses it, and I made it in one go, and it's just terrible. I want to remove it. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Denise, are you telling me that you not only built a scripting language on top of JavaScript, but you built a templating language inside of your scripting language that's on top of JavaScript? Look, I'm telling you, this kid is a lunatic. It's just... <laughs> Don't. I shouldn't have publicized it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my. Yeah, goodness. we we uh, we might take that out. I think the biggest and Ben Ben, you made this point. I think on on Twitter, the big thing, what's hard with HyperScript is it's it's great to read, but it's it's hard to write at least at first until you really get the feel for it. And even when you get the feel for it, it can be a little tricky to write because it has this natural language syntax, which just you have to know how to say certain things. So how do you deal with that? Well, the answer is autocomplete, right? Like we need to, so at some point we, and by we, I mean, Dennis needs to bite the bullet and write a language server so that we can provide autocomplete for people when they're, when they're writing HyperScript. Cause I think you can do some really neat stuff with HyperScript. You can write some really clean, tight code with HyperScript. But at this point, I think you have to kind of be into that. You have to, when you go to hyperscript.org with your inner poets. Yeah. You need to really value readability over the writing experience because it's just, it's a different style of scripting. And so eventually we need to provide that better tooling support for our end users if we want broad adoption of HyperScript, in my opinion. A 1.0, you know, I think we could see one maybe as soon as January of next year. I don't know. That might be a little ambitious, but soon, relatively soon. But again, I don't think we'll see broad adoption until we provide tooling. And even then, I mean, again, I think far more people will use HTMX in the world than will use HyperScript, at least for the midterm. We'll see where it goes. And that's a really good point to make is that you can use HTMX without HyperScript. And I'm assuming you can use HyperScript without HTMX, right? So they're not bound together. They just happen to kind of work well together like coffee and cream. Yeah, they're designed to work well together. HTMX emits a lot of events and HyperScript is very good at consuming and producing other events. And so they they work well together. They're designed with one another in mind. When you, HTMX, when new content is added by HTMX, any hyperscript in it will be automatically initialized based on way that they're integrated, which uses events actually. So they, they play well together, but they're definitely not, if you use HTMX, you don't have to use hyperscript and vice versa. You know what I think you really need for your website in terms of tooling? I agree with you that you need some kind of autocomplete, both for the IntelliJ and also VS Code crowds, but I think you should have a REPL on your hyperscript site. So uh, a read, evaluate, print loop, basically where, I know you've got a cookbook where you've got some examples and people can click on them, but I mean a sandbox, kind of like uh, the graphical playground or Sprig has got a playground that you can just put stuff in it and in the browser, you can just try out your code and see if it works. I would love to see that. Yeah, there actually is one. <laughs> it's, it used what? to be secrets until I redesigned the homepage. And even yeah. then, it's kind of buried at the bottom. We could make the, there's an example on the homepage. We could make that editable. Ah, I see. Try it in the playground. I see it. Yeah. I would be a little more prominent with that. Maybe it's just my lack of uh, observation, but it's a pretty, usually a pretty prominent thing on a lot of the language pages. One of the reasons why GraphQL was so fun for me to learn was I just played around in the graphical playground. Yeah. And 
The other cool thing is things like Svelte. Svelte has got a REPL that you can just dump stuff in, and all of their examples are actually in the REPL. So as you see an example, you see an editable version of the example, and then you can change it, and it's just, it's really kind of a, a sweet pattern to do. My apologies for not seeing that. You do have a REPL in there. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we probably need to make that more prominent. Dennis will get right on that. You know what I mean? It could even be on the cookbook How do you page keep getting there. away with it? <laughs> I know. I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a delegator. I'm an ideas guy. I'm an ideas guy. A born manager. I got it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I think one of the things that you're noticing is that we keep saying this, but hyperscript is, and I don't want to scare people away. If you're interested in hyperscript, give it a try. And I think you'll enjoy it. If this sort of thing grabs you, then it's a stable, useful piece of software already, but it is more speculative than HTMX. So HTMX is brass tacks. Just we'll show you exactly what you can do, copy and paste examples and so forth. Whereas HyperScript for me anyways, is much more of a fun project and just, it doesn't, I haven't had the same emphasis on sort of a professional look as or professional general feel as we have with HTMX. It's not to say we won't get there eventually, but it, as a, so far it's been more of a fun project. So if I'm working on a six figure client site for my agency and it's for a well-known brand, are you saying I can ship HyperScript into production? You're saying that you're, it's ready to go now? Yeah. So HTMX just picked up its first official corporate sponsor. And that corporate sponsor is called Comspace. And they had an intercooler and jQuery-based application. Their their main application is was intercooler and jQuery-based. And uh, they ported it to HTMX and HyperScript. And they've had a uh, great experience with it. It was very good feedback for us when we were developing HyperScript to have them working with us. And so while I say, okay, HyperScript is maybe a little more speculative than HTMX. At the same time, it's very usable for applications today. It's not something that I would shy away from using for, for small stuff. I wouldn't want, and I think you'd be making a mistake, no matter how mature HyperScript gets, of writing like a huge application in it. That you're, you're going the wrong way if you're writing a ton of HyperScript. HyperScript is designed to be a light scripting language that enhances your web application. So you don't want to be using a, just swaths of HyperScript script to invoke JSON APIs and all that sort of stuff. That's just not what it's designed for. But for relatively light front-end scripting needs, like toggling menus and so forth, it's a really, it's, it's a good solution. So we have people that are using it in production. All right. So Ben, let me give you a scenario. Since you said you're coming around to HyperScript, the scenario is that I work at an agency. I'm, I'm a new web developer. I'm working at an agency and we inherit this old site from Ben Croker, because Ben has decided to, he, he's becoming a blue-footed booby breeder on the Azores, and he's just retiring, he's just gonna breed birds, and he's done with this whole web development thing. So we're inheriting this site from Ben Croker to, you know, and we gotta work on it. And I'm sitting down there, I'm a new web developer, I open up the project, I take a look at it, and I see, oh, okay, this has got this twig stuff, all right? And then Sprig, what the hell is Sprig? I never, I don't know what Sprig is. And then and then I see this this HTMX stuff and I see this HyperScript hyper stuff and I'm looking at it and I'm like, they didn't teach me any of this in my React bootcamp. What the hell am I supposed to do with this? What is your answer to that person? Rewrite it. HyperScript is perfect for rewriting. It's already, it's already written in it, it's already written in hyperscript you're saying rewrite it out of hyperscript yes rewrite in it in scenario, react it's... hyperscript oh. is optimized for readability over writability which makes it perfect for porting to something else that's our approach to scalability like if you need to scale up just rewrite it 
the uh, the hyperscript could become your comments. <laughs> so Ben, how would you answer this person, the, this poor person that inherited your project and they see Twig, they see Sprig, they see HTMX, they see Hyperscript, and they're like, we didn't learn any of this in our React bootcamp. Yeah. What would your answer to well, them be? I just want to acknowledge the them? two comments that came before, like turn your Hyperscript into the comment and then rewrite it in, in React <laughs> because you know exactly what it needs to do, or leave it as is because it's already working and hopefully there's a link to the the hyperscript docs which are well written and well maintained and go figure out what needs to be tweaked in most cases because hyperscript is so readable it will be obvious what's going on and if something needs to be rewritten well that's at that stage you need to learn a bit of syntax but again it's so easy to understand that you can either tweak move things around and tweak as needed or learn a bit of extra hyperscript but i think these are easy and approachable tools to to come to i think you could say well everything should be javascript vanilla js because that's what people are learning but um no they're not they're learning react <laughs> they're learning react okay they're learning then they're learning scripting languages and they're learning how to use uh, javascript frameworks and, and libraries yeah and i agree i think that becoming a good programmer doesn't mean memorizing the apis and it doesn't mean knowing all of the nuances of the language it means being able to think and problem solve at a higher level so assuming you have those skills, they should translate from one to the other. I also happen to have, and this is my own personal problem, Carson, don't, don't blame me. You know, well, you can't, well, actually, if it's my personal problem, you definitely can blame <laughs> me. Anyway, I have a, a bias against boutique things. Sure. And the reason I have a bias against them is I've inherited any number of websites or, or programming projects that have been done in someone's pet choice of the day yep. and you know then i'm dealing with uh, i'm trying to figure out what the hell this does in coffee script and trying to build something that will actually compile coffee script into something usable or i i see some unusual templating language in there i'm like what the hell is this you know you know what i mean so i have a bias against boutique things for a couple of reasons one just that is unlikely to be something that other people are going to know and as ben noted an argument against that is well these things are so simple that you can pick them up quickly and, and that's a reason reasonable argument to make. The other is from a staffing point of view. If I'm in human resources or on the other end, if I'm a person trying to get a job, there are certain things that people are looking for. And a lot of these would be so niche that they wouldn't, it, they would be hard for an employer to find someone that has these skills, but they would also be hard if you were the, the person that had them to put them on your resume. And then that would be the basis for getting a job. That says nothing about how useful or how good HTMX, Hyperscript, or any of these things are. It's just sort of a, a broader thought process what would you say to that am i yeah. being too close-minded on this stuff no I, I think that's that's totally reasonable and it's just the that's a reality that we as htmx and hyperscript are definitely alternative takes on web development i would say that the two together are sort of like that's my best alternative to the current set of, of web development tools that are out there. And the reality is that it's just, it's not the standard and that's okay. I, I think intercooler had been around for a long time before I rewrote it as HTMX. And since that rewrite, it's gotten a huge amount of traction, like in the Django community, for example. And so, uh, you know, there may come a point where people, you know, look in HTMX anyways, as more of a standard. And the only way you can get there is just by sticking around. Right. HTMX and HyperScript are both written in such a way that all you do is include a file and you can just use them. And so there's no build step that you get into with some of the, you know, like CoffeeScript or whatever. And so in that sense, they're, they're much 
much more standalone technologies. And so you can try them out. You can play around with them a little bit. They're not, HTMX is smaller than, than HyperScript. I think HTMX is around 10K right now and HyperScript is around 21K. So they're not gigantic pieces of software. Um, and you can just use them and see if you like how they look. And if not, then that's okay too. And I think that is appealing because everything is alternative until it's not, yep. right? Every thought or idea or whatever always was alternative until it wasn't anymore. So there's no, I mean, that's just the way these things start, right? Yeah. Vue.js was inspired by AngularJS and is very similar in some ways. And that was very alternative until it was not. So you're right. I mean, the, the idea is to kind of just keep going and iterating on this stuff. Yeah. One aspect, I think, and you ran into this when you first looked at HyperScript, is the syntax is pretty jarring. It's this English style syntax that is a little, it just looks strange. But the advantage of that is that it doesn't look like anything else. So mm. it's not JavaScript. It's not like, oh, is this an on-click handler? Oh, what's this other funny syntax? Like when you, you've got HyperScript in your web page, you know it, <laughs> you can see it. And it's pretty straightforward what it's doing, even if it was hard to write that HyperScript. And so in that sense, again, you know, I think by stepping outside the normal syntax that we're used to and at some level with web development, it, it sticks out and provides sort of a visual marker for like, okay, here's something that's a little different. And hopefully it's very clear to read, but this isn't just going to be some selector that's buried in an attribute or something like that. It's it's something different. And so I think that helps with when you're looking at, looking at a web page that has some hyperscript on it, the fact that it looks a little different helps in that sense. And I think the other reality is that people are trying to get stuff done. Like people are trying to be productive with the tools that they have right now and expecting somebody to have to learn React or Vue.js to add a little bit of uh, interactivity into their into their website is unrealistic and for most people overwhelming. What many people are trying to do is just sprinkle a bit of interactivity and some event handlers into their modern websites and a high level JavaScript library, as opposed to a framework, is, is very appealing because you can learn it in an hour. You can easily learn enough HyperScript to use it throughout your website and get the interactivity that you need. So that, that is very appealing, I think, how approachable it is and how quickly you can get up and running. Like no build step, you just include the script and off you go. I think, though, that the scenario you painted is for someone who has been in the web development business for a long time, where maybe they're just thinking about picking up React or Vue. The reality in terms of what I'm seeing in terms of people that are newly getting into this is that they're not learning much of anything other than React. I mean, you're lucky if they're learning any CSS or any HTML at all. A lot of the people that are coming out, whether it's boot camps or college or other educational institutions, they may be learning some of the fundamental stuff, but a lot of them are just learning React. And that's kind of what they're coming out to. But what you were saying about the build step is... Even though, as you know, Ben, I'm a big tooling guy, like I, I do all the crazy webpack and Vite configs and I'm all, you know, I'm all about that. I still totally understand, man. I mean, tooling has got to be one of the worst things because you just want to get going. You want to solve the project you're trying to solve and you just want to do it. And I actually ran into something like that on a project that I'm working on right now where the project I wanted to upgrade to Node 16 because it's the first version of Node that is native on Apple Silicon and there's some more enhancements it's or whatever i said great project is dockerized easy we'll just change the version and away we go brought it up and running 
Oh my God, now the build is throwing errors. Okay, the error is that it's using node SAS. And the reason that's throwing errors is that's not offered as native for the M1, it's been deprecated. Now everyone is supposed to use this thing called Dart SAS, which is the thing that compiles it. I said, all right, I'll just swap in this Dart SAS thing and you know see if I can get this up and running. Nope, still errors because some of the syntax that is in the old bootstrap CSS that they're using isn't compatible with modern SAS. And just this, this whole freaking nightmare. I ended up just undoing the, the whole, yeah, I deleted the Git branch that I was on. I'm just like, all right, fuck it. I'm just gonna leave it the way it is. And we're just gonna, until we decide to eliminate some of the older CSS code base that's there, we're just gonna limp along with the, the Node 12 or Node 14 or whatever it is that's running. But it, it's that kind of thing that if you didn't have someone that was into DevOps and tooling, it would be an impassable mountain, right? Like you just, it, there would be, you just wouldn't do anything. Yeah, and HTMX and HyperScript are both dependency free. So one one big focus we've tried to keep on both of these libraries, we're just not going to depend on anything. We're going to do it all ourselves. It's going to be all internal. And the advantage of that is that you you can just slap a tag on your website, even though it's just an HTML page, and you can start writing some scripting. Again, I, the, the, the flavor of HyperScript to me is this very high level scripty. It's scripty. In a way, the JavaScript today, when I write it anyways, doesn't feel very scripty. It's a very heavy no. programming language. And so yeah. uh, we wanted to, I wanted to bring back and Dennis uh, definitely, uh, I hope, uh, I think he, he feels the same way. We wanted to bring back this joy of scripting. There was back in the day, you used to write scripts and they were just great little pieces of code and they did something cool and it was neat. And it didn't involve newing up objects or any of that stuff. Like that was just not what you were doing. And so HyperScript's an attempt to get back to that fun, light, high level scripting concept that has sort of gone the wayside as these heavier, gigantic frameworks have kind of come into the and taken over the JavaScript community. Yeah, and I, that all makes sense to me. I want to see, Carson, if I can get you to commit to something is sure. it on this broadcast. Yeah. This is going to probably be kind of difficult. I don't know where Denise stands on here, but maybe he can chime in too. Even though your goal is to have this be dependency free and just be this one thing that you ship. I still think the whole HTMX and HyperScript code base should be rewritten in TypeScript. What do you think about it? And will you commit to doing that? And do we need to talk about the benefits of that? Or, or what, do you, what do you think on that subject? Did Ben pay you off to, to bring this up? <laughs> I did. No, I paid Ben off in a way. <laughs> uh, I'm in favor. I like C Sharp and TypeScript is yeah. basically C Sharp. Yeah, and written by the same author, uh, by the way. Yeah, so and certainly for HyperScript, I'm a little hesitant with HTMX just because it's it's working and I, I don't know. But HyperScript, it'd be really nice to have a full type system and to be able to actually use real classes. So, so I'm not going to commit. I'm not going to commit. But uh, I think HyperScript would be the first thing we would look at making the conversion for. What do you think, Dennis? Do you have an opinion on this? Well, I agree that, I mean, HyperScript already has a build process, so it's not that far off and right. I actually did some work on getting HyperScript to be smaller and, and it's going to be really hard to do that with the current code base because a lot of things are stuffed into objects and object properties can't be minified. So I'm honestly open to it. One issue I have is currently the HyperScript code base is pure JavaScript ES module. So you can load the source code directly in the browser uh, and that's how we run the tests. We wouldn't be able to do that with TypeScript. Well, you could still load the resulting ESM bundle yeah like in, you need to run yeah. like a watcher and compile it 
it's just a barrier to entry to contributing. It's not bad. And if we need all the contributors we can get. If you try out something like Vite, it will do all this stuff for you. It's kind of really nice. But you're right. That is something that you make a really good point, though. By adopting TypeScript as the language for this thing, you do kind of narrow the number of people that might potentially contribute to it because there are a lot more people that know JavaScript than know TypeScript, even though... In the HyperScript community, a lot of them don't even know JavaScript very well. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, they're probably not going to be contributing to the code base then if they don't even know JavaScript, right? <laughs> it's funny. We do have some people that show up and they're like, I don't like, I don't know any JavaScript. And how do you do this? And then we give it to them and they're, you know, happiest clams. Like, man, it wouldn't have been that bad, that much work to just figure out how to do it in JavaScript. But <laughs> I appreciate how curmudgeonly some people are about, about JavaScript. But. Well, that should be the whole point, though, is you should have people using hyperscript that don't know any javascript right i mean that's really the point yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's funny it's kind of a horseshoe situation where i think hyperscript is best for people who don't know or know very little javascript and then also people yeah. for people that have a very deep knowledge of javascript and understand and don't want to write they don't want to write 25 lines of javascript they want to write a couple lines of hyperscript because really to get into the the deep hyperscript like dennis someone will come on and I, we, there was a, a github issue where someone was asking about something and dennis just knocked out like five or six lines of hyperscript that did some pretty advanced stuff uh, as far as selecting table rows and so forth and the person who was who had logged this issue against hyperscript was a pretty good javascript developer they they knew Vue.js really well and it just kind of blew their mind to see this other way of thinking about about front-end scripting and you know someone like dennis can come up with that so it really is very good for absolute for beginners or for people that need like very little but then also for people that have a deep understanding of the dom and of scripting in general and you can do some really cool stuff, very little code. So. People have a deep understanding of how easy it is to get it wrong. Fair enough. But that actually leads me to a, a question that I have. JavaScript is interesting because we have different standards that we can compile down to to make sure that they will work in various browsers. What do you have in place for HyperScript to ensure that the HyperScript I write today is going to work a decade from now after the language has evolved a little bit? Are you just going to make people lock into specific semvers and you're gonna be like, no breaking changes until 1.0.2.0.3.0, that kind of way? Or how are you gonna handle the compatibility? Let's say I'm on board, I wanna write this HyperScript stuff. I do this huge site with HyperScript and HTMX and then a new version of HyperScript script comes out and it breaks the syntax of my code. How do you deal with that? I don't plan on change. I think the syntax is pretty much what I want from a scripting language. And so I don't, I just don't plan on breaking things. I don't know. It's always been a little weird to me how cavalier a lot of these projects are where they version seven, rewrite the whole world again. You know, you look at HTMX <laughs> or intercooler, for example, and you got the API pretty much correct. So you just don't change it and it's fine. A hyperscript is, we try to be added it's a programming language. The basics continue to work. We're, we're just not going to break it. So I don't know. It's always struck me as a little bit odd how willing people are to break software. I don't think, I, I don't know, maybe I'm being overly uh, arrogant here, but I feel like we kind of got it right. And so now it's just polishing things and making additive changes, adding new commands. So the, the equivalent of statements in most programming languages to HyperScript. I mean, it has a pluggable grammar, so you can plug in new stuff to the language sort of on 
on the side if you want to try out speculative features, but maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but I don't feel like we're going to change too much about the way HyperScript works. We had a pretty good idea of what we wanted early on, and I feel like we've achieved that. And so I don't anticipate big, big changes after 1.0. Famous last in words. Theory, but... In theory, you could even make changes to the implementation provided you don't break any of the syntax. And the syntax yeah. is rather limited in scope. So provided that doesn't change, you have quite free reign about the implementation of the, the features. Well, we all know how that works though, right? I mean, someone has a great idea for optimizing something like maybe a, a fantastic way to optimize the sprig attributes that are in HTML and great, we'll implement it and then it breaks stuff, right? You know, I mean, the, these things do happen, but usually the breaking changes come when new features need to be added. Or maybe you decide this grammar of the language really isn't correct in order to do the problem that we're trying to solve in 2030 or, or stuff like that. You know what I mean? Usually it's new features that cause this stuff to break. So you're just going to follow Semver when you introduce any language breaking features or such? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> you know. All right. Well, we got a definite maybe. <laughs> you got a definite maybe out of me. It's again, I just feel like the language is pretty the semantics of the language are pretty baked. The way the the internals of it work, the way the what we call async transparency, so the thing that makes promises all kind of transparent to end users. And then as far as the number of commands that are available, then is like, I don't know. There's maybe 3 or 4 or more that we might add, but at that point, it's like you can use them if you're on that version of the language. But we're not going to take stuff away. And I just, again, I in all my projects, I try and be backwards compatible. It just that just seems like the same thing to me. So we are going to make one breaking change in HTMX. We're pulling WebSockets and server sign events out to uh, extensions. Um, so we're pulling that out of the core. But that's like the one big thing I can think of where I've said, okay, we'll we'll have a breaking change in that case. By and large, I just try and avoid breaking changes as much as possible. We've got a very extensive test suite for both projects, and so just keep the test working. You know. The only quote I can think of is the best laid plans of mice and men. <laughs> You know what I mean? We all yeah. have plans for not stuff to break. And, yeah. you know, I, I've been married for over 15 years and I thought I thought I had, a, I had everything nailed and I did everything perfectly. But it, it shocked me. My wife informed me that I'm actually not doing everything correct. It's uh, really, really strange. Yeah. There might be some breaking changes in my behavior. But that about wraps it up for another episode <laughs> of the devmode.fm podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, drop us a review. We really would appreciate it, especially if you put a nice five-star review in iTunes. It'll only take you a couple minutes. It helps for discoverability of the show or the devmode.fm podcast. I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Ben Croker. And thank you, Carson from Big Sky Software for coming on. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Denise Akshimshake for coming on. coughing up a lung trying to like hit mute before i like throw up <laughs> oh man all right that was great this is going to be an absolute nightmare to try and stitch this together but hopefully hopefully i'll be able to do it no you did you did awesome it was great to have you both on denise i apologize i should have gotten to you more but your connection had a lot of static on it too so i was trying to you know i don't know i don't know what's going on there uh in any event so the deal is that i am going to stop this recording and i'm going to stop the backup recording